HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. What did you eat this morning? Or what did you cook this morning? Did you write about it? Take a picture of it? Keep it in a diary. <laughs> Silly questions, right? But you might, after you hear today's show, on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And it's a different kind of culinary history today. We're not studying a particular era, a particular kind of food, but we are studying women. My guest today is Laura Shapiro, and she's written a new book called What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories. And as Laura says... Biographers talk about every aspect of someone's lives, but rarely do they ever talk about the food. And yet, the food can open the door into new insights. Laura is a journalist and an author and a culinary historian, and she has written for well, she's written. For, um, we, I guess I could. I guess I should go ahead and say she's written for Newsweek. She's covered issues of food, women's issues in the arts. She's won journalism awards. Her essays, reviews, and features have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Condé Nast, 
traveler, Condé Nast traveler, gourmet, gastronomic, a slate, blah, 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 on and on. Too many, Laura. And so many other publications. Her first book was Perfection Salad, Women and Cooking at the Turn of the Century, for which the, that was for University of California Press, and uh, it's been reissued. It's still that popular, and it sh- as well it should be. Also the author of Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner in the 50s, in 1950s America by Viking. And, ah, that was what you were on for, Julia Child, A Life, right, uh, which won the award for literary food writing from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And other awards that she's won have included the James Beard Journalism Award and one from the National Women's Political Caucus. She's been a fellow at the Dorothy and Lewis Cullman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. And... She was featured in Michael Pollan's Netflix documentary series, Cooked. Wow, now that's a varied background. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. It is great to be here. <laughs> that, and and it, I think that hearing that background of, of the various things that you've done it just really um, heightens, it should heighten people's curiosity about your insights with this new book. You... You take you take the lens of food and cooking and re-examine these very well-known women's lives about which perhaps prior to this we didn't know about food. Well, in a couple instances we did, but not food was never really attached to their lives. And I, I guess we should just jump right in and, and tell our listeners they have to go get the book themselves to read the stories. But tell the listeners who these people were whose lives you re-examined through food? Well, I start with Dorothy Wordsworth, who in many ways inspired the book, and I can tell you that origin story if you want. And then uh, we have Rosa Lewis, who was a cockney scullery maid in the Victorian era, and she climbed her way up the social ladder, cooking all the way until she became one of the best-known sought-after caterers in Edwardian England. Then we have Eleanor Roosevelt, not known for food particularly, but her food story is incredibly interesting and quite revelatory about Eleanor herself. I write about uh, Eva Braun, Hitler's mistress, which was uh, difficult to write about, as you can imagine, for all the reasons you can think of, but turned out to be very enlightening also. I write about Barbara Pym, who's one of my favorite novelists, who British novelist who published in mostly in the 50s and the 60s, and her novels are full of food. And finally, Helen Gurley Brown, somebody we don't associate with food, we associate with being skinny, and she was, but that turned out to be her food story. <laughs> and some people might say, well, wh- who was the most surprising person on this list? And to me, Rosa Lewis is the most surprising person on the list uh, because she was all about food. She was. She was. I had thought at first that I wouldn't have culinary professionals. My whole point was to look at the lives of people who were not writing cookbooks, were not thinking about food all day, find out what their relationship with food was. I came to Rosa Lewis. I read a little something about her, and I got more and more interested, and I then broke my own rule and included her because despite the fact that she was a caterer and very accomplished and well-known for that, the other books about her hadn't really dealt with the food. And her own view of food, uh, I, don't, I don't think she ever really came to terms with the most interesting thing about it, which was that it was drenched 
in class. Her class yeah. identity was a huge part of her food story. She was she's like an Eliza Doolittle of the kitchen, ex- with one really important exception, which is that as she climbed up, she kept her accent. And uh, in sort of analyzing that, the kind of push pull she had between rising on the social ladder and staying where she was and trying to be accepted as exactly the person she was, that became her food story. So the food led me in there in a way that was very surprising. All right. Well, I mean, we know that that food is always kind of enmeshed in this social and economic reality, if you will. Um, and and it very often defines a woman's place. But you wrote something about about Rosa. There was some incident took place, and you may have quoted someone who said, or you wrote, class implications lodged even in a sandwich could be formidable. And that's where you, you, you realize that she can cook food that climbs the social ladder, and food can climb social ladder, but she would go back to the scullery and she would eat this sandwich that satisfied her and it told a lot of who she was eating that sandwich. Absolutely and one of the things uh, I discovered which was wonderful to see she became uh, a a favorite caterer and chef of the king, of King King Edward Edward. VII yes, who of course had palace cooks but when he went to someone's house, some you know mansion invited to dinner, and the hostess is thrilled that the king is coming, but uh, how can her cook possibly do this? So she brings in Rosa Lewis to cook for the king and because she knew that Rosa was a favorite. And Rosa Lewis, who understood the food of her time, Escoffier kind of set the standard. This was elaborate, great French cooking, cost of fortune, truffles raining like raindrops all over everything. And she would do some of that, but she would include the kinds of things she knew appealed to the king. Boiled beef and beans, boiled bacon, this kind of uh, British home sort of nursery food that the king loved. He was a quite a gourmand in his way. I mean, he was, he was way overweight and basically stuffed himself at the table, and his wife and doctor were always appalled at how much he was eating. But he, and he was very accustomed to the fanciest food at the time, but he had a taste for these kind of old home things, and he loved Rose's cooking because she would feed that hunger for him. There can't have been another chef or caterer in England who would have dared to make boiled bacon and beans for the king. Rosa did that. Smart woman. She did her homework. Yeah. She was. She knew how to cook the fancy foods, but she did yes. her homework on what people liked because she knew yeah. what she liked yes. as well. You know, and that's and as again, that's that's somebody whose life was all about food and and cooking. But she and then she used that as a a means to climb the ranks of society as well. Um, but in you wrote about digging deep into these women's stories, and, and I want you to share with us a couple more of those. And, and in Digging Deep, you liken them to the underside of a Rockwell painting. I love that. Which, of course, usually the Rockwell painting is this picture of perfection and contentment. Not perfection, necessarily, but, you know, it was, it was um, Middle America contentment. And you wrote that, and, and I quote, in every instance... Opening a window on what she cooked 
and eight cast a different light on the usual narrative of her life and the hers being these particular women that were that you that you examined. Tell us this, the the story about Dorothy Wordsworth. Now, this is the sister of William's word, words, William Wordsworth. Can't get that out. Um, and her her diaries became enormously famous and and. Uh, that was really it was really Dorothy Wordsworth's story that sort of catapulted me into this. I had a few ideas about ways of talking about women and biography and bringing food into it. It's kind of floating around in my mind a little bit. When I was uh, up with insomnia at three in the morning, and as you know, it's it's such a horrible experience. Mm. You're wandering around, you look at your bookshelf, you just want something that is going to quietly send you back to sleep. I pull out this short biography of Dorothy Wordsworth, and I start turning pages. I'm just thinking, oh, Dove Cottage, the little gooseberry tarts, and she loves her brother and the daffodils, and this is Dorothy, and this is, gonna, this is what I need at 3 a.m. So I start turning the pages of Dorothy Wordsworth's life, and sure enough, there we are in the Lake District, of the, one of the most beautiful areas of England, and she's cooking and being a kind of poetry handmaiden to her brother whom she adores beyond all other people and they have this idyllic little life in Dove Cottage and food is very much part of it she's writing the Grasmere Journal her diary of those years this whole time, that is a document that is still very widely read today and much loved and, and, she, and very important for, for many yes. many, many concerns yeah. yeah, no, for a lot of uh, perspective on that whole era and time and and she's you know, they'll get the rhubarb, and she makes the little rhubarb tart, and somebody uh, somebody brings over cream, or she'll she'll uh, go to the orchard and pick the apples, or pull the peas for, for every all the food is from her hands. It's the intimate food from right around them, and she um, she's serving it to the person she loves most on earth. That's Dove Cottage. I skipped a few chapters. Suddenly, Dorothy turns up in this bleak village in the middle of nowhere. She's now taking care of a nephew who has become the curate in this uh, really godforsaken little place. William has married. He's got a family. Dorothy has spent 25 years taking care of that family. She's the unmarried sister, which which has its own role in life. And uh, so she's the one who's been giving her life to take care of them. Now she's still doing that. She's taking care of the nephew. But far, far away from the beauties of the Lake District and from these beautiful little meals that she and William used to have. And what caught my eye was that uh, she sits down to dinner one day. This would be an afternoon dinner. And what's served is black pudding. And it just sits there in her diary of that time. Black pudding for dinner. I couldn't believe it, the very idea of black pudding, which of course is like a, this countryside favorite. The British have been eating it for many, many generations. But in terms of class and kind of Dorothy's personal refinement and all the other evidence in all the other material about her life, she was not someone who ate black pudding. This is uh, basically it's pig's blood and oatmeal, and that family was not having it for dinner. And uh, maybe, maybe a little piece for breakfast, but it was not dinner. So how did it get on the table? Who put it there? What 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 did Dorothy see when she looked down at that plate? I feel as though she saw 
Her whole past had crumbled away and it had come to this. She had given her life away and it had come down to this uh, basically gastrointestinal distress on a plate. She suffered from <laughs> some kind of colitis and was always complaining like mad that her, her stomach and her insides were in chaos. She was in a lot of pain. And this is famously indigestible. It just was not her. And she wasn't preparing her own food. No, this was being time. served, yes. Right. So, so I thought, you know what, if you could get to that, if you could figure that out, how did she and that black pudding get into the same room? What happened when she ate it? Did she eat it or did she sort of push it around? What happened? What is the story? And I thought, you know, Dorothy Wordsworth is much written about. She's, she's a major, much-loved figure in the uh, English romantic poetry, poetry world. I thought, but look at the food. Maybe we'll see something else, something that hasn't come out in all the other writing about Dorothy Wordsworth. So that kind of got me going on that, some So of that these. was really the, the springboard. That was the yeah, first one. Yeah, it was one, one of them, yeah. Interesting. And, but your choices, I have to say, are extremely interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, and then we find a shared... Um, uh, love for a particular person, and that's Barbara Pym. We, she, you know, confession time. She has been one of my longtime all favorite authors. You would say, well, that's not very exciting. Yes, it's exciting in its unexcitingness. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Pym's a wonderful writer, published in the fifties uh, and sixties in Britain, uh, with a cast of characters who are these wonderful women spinsters uh, often throughout the novel, but then there's always some suitor who comes out from the wings uh, towards the end. She believed in the marriage plot. But these are wonderfully uh, mild-mannered, independent women, very nuanced characters, seemingly unglamorous lives in their cardigans and their sensible shoes, but in fact they are the funniest, most observant least illusioned women you can imagine. They are a great, great cast of characters in her books. And the books are full of food, and I had they always are, loved yeah. them. I had a lot always, of tea, but also a lot of food. <laughs> they are cooking up a storm, and it is not the dreary British food that we all expect to read about for the post-war right, years. Right. They are making beautiful things, not always. It's this wonderful mix of the horrible and the great, which was British food in that time. I've been reading Barbara Pym for 20 or 30 years, adoring every page, reading them over and over. My copies are all in shreds. I thought, you know, at last, okay, if I'm doing a book about looking at women's lives through food, at last I get to write all I want about Barbara Pym. It's almost as though she she sort of um, is the voice of what you're doing here because she wrote about ordinary lives. She wrote about the food. She wrote... I mean, she really gave um, the the ordinary, you know, the food that she was cooked. Think she had to have cooked much of it because mm-hmm. she was writing so much in detail, and that is that's something that you know is there on the page, which you don't often find in in a lot of books about ordinary details of people's lives. It's no, not easy to write. No, and she details. was she was very aware of that, and she says in her 
diaries and notebooks and letters, of which there's a beautiful stash at the Bodleian Library at Oxford where she gave all her papers. So, you know, she's a dream to do the research for because it's all right there. And she says, you know, why don't writers tell you more about what people ate? It's the most interesting thing about them. It tells you the most. I, I want to see it. And she made sure to put it in her own novels because she really saw it as a key to character. You look at somebody, she used to sit in the Lion's Corner House, which were the, the great cafeteria restaurants of London for decades after the war, and uh, or before and after. And uh, she would sit there, she would, on her lunch hour, she would pull out a little notebook, she would just watch. She would watch what these people put on their trays in the cafeteria line. I don't know about you, but when I ever see a cafeteria, I am riveted to what people put on those yeah, trays. Absolutely. It is fascinating. You always go to divert dessert first. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so she would sit there, write it all down, and put in little comments about it. Then she eavesdrop eavesdrops on the people next to her. So she's watching what they eat and listening to how they talk and how they approach the food. She is getting that whole detailed picture. Which is, and that all goes right into the books, which is why I think you can read those books for what they tell you about British cuisine about after yeah. the war. Right. I mean, we have this idea that it was just all kind of marmite and custard and sludge, but when you read her, you see that it's a vastly more varied picture. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and, and the other uh, people, Ellen, well, you, you gave a little precursor to the Eleanor Roosevelt story for an article you did in New Yorker a couple years ago, and I'm sure that was part of the research that you had done for this book, and that, to many of us, has become, you know, quite well known and quite popular. (laughs) People who weren't so interested in food for, well, didn't think they should be so interested in food for, you know, for popular consumption, (laughs) even though she may have had her own appetite. She did. That was a fascinating thing to, uh, to look at. Because we, she's probably the, the figure in the book who is best known to the widest number of people. Mm-hmm. So, so hers is a name that really jumps out. And it jumps out at me when I started thinking about this. I knew that the food in the Roosevelt White House was widely considered the worst in Atrocious. the history of the White House. <laughs> Atrocious, you can say it. <laughs> everybody just, and that it wasn't just bad, but that everybody knew about it. It was famous for being bad. And that from what I had known about Eleanor, just a little, it just seemed to be so out of line with the kind of person she was. It was very uh, adored by her friends, wonderfully sympathetic person, a great hostess, the kind of person who makes you welcome the second you walk in. People would often write about being invited to the White House. They'd say, you know, we got there, we were so nervous, but FDR was great, very impressive, and Eleanor made us feel right at home. People just melted in her presence. She's a warm, good person. That is the woman who sat at this table and watched her guests fiddling with something called ham Hawaiian or (laughs) pushing this horribly cooked slabs of what I know was lamb, but in fact they all thought it was mutton because it was so dry and gray. They're pushing it around on their plates. The plates are going back to the kitchen, you know, not barely eaten. She sees this and doesn't care. Something's going on there. I just had to find out more. Mm. I, I mm. just it, it just didn't hold true. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And a lot of people thought, well, she's just giving voice to austerity and the time to be, you know, to even apply austerity to the kitchen. But that wasn't. I don't think that was all it 
either. That was part of it. That was part of it. In the role of first lady, she felt that the White House should demonstrate economical cooking. Remember, Mm -hmm. it's the Depression, it's the war, it's rationing. So she did not want the White House to be a showcase for, you know, exotic, beautiful cooking where people were just having a wonderful time. She needn't have worried. That never happened. (laughs) So she, she wanted the food to be very, very simple and very economical. And, of course, if the cooking had been good, it would have been just fine. But she had put in place a housekeeper who was a friend of hers that she wanted to help her out by giving her a job. So, basically, she put this woman in place completely inept. And so the uh, the food turned out so bad. Eleanor both minded and didn't mind. She didn't love the fact that they had this terrible reputation. But there was something in her that would not make it better. And that had all to do with her feelings about being married to FDR, which were very complicated. Her feelings about being first lady, also very complicated. She didn't want that job. Once she was in it, she did it better than any other first lady ever has done, but she hadn't chosen it. So it's this kind of welter of uh, mixed feelings in that whole part of her life. Outside the White House, when you see her traveling, getting together with other family members hanging out with her women friends who were these fabulous, active feminists of that time, or in the years uh, following the death of FDR when she's out of the White House and on her own wonderful public career for years, that's when you see mentions of food as a pleasure come in to her letters and the things that people say about her and they watch. She ate with delight. She she would never would have said that about herself, but it is clear when she when she writes about it early, this is actually in her White House years, she goes up to stay with a friend, a man who is a very close friend of hers, and she goes up with her secretary, and they're helping him settle into a new house he has in Albany. She is first lady, but she spends days because she loves these people, and she spends days with them. And she writes to a friend, she says, I made baking powder biscuits. They came out okay. I made popovers. This is Eleanor Roosevelt, who's supposed to be so austere and care nothing about food, but she is with the people she loves. So food became an expression of that of love, in yeah. her life. Yeah. It's so wonderful. You know, if you if you care about Eleanor Roosevelt, to see that she was not denied the pleasure of food, she really did have it. So you're, you can't help but be happy. Well, we have two more people to mention brief stories about, and then I want to talk to you about your feelings about all of this women and food when we come back after a short break. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity. Water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? 
goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in, in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Laura Shapiro, and Laura's new book is What She Ate, the... Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories. Um, and it's it's interesting because um, we don't really look at, we don't think about people eating. We don't think about those ordinary rituals that everyone does. Everyone has to eat to stay alive. But we don't think they're sometimes important to know about. their And they're not, but they do... They are another aspect of a person's life, and they do tell a lot about a person's life. Um, the two other women that you write about, and we will just briefly, just briefly touch on them because I want to talk about your reactions to a lot of these stories. <laughs> Laura said, I just can't stop talking about these stories. <laughs> well, that should give you a little clue as to how interesting the book is because Laura just keeps telling those stories. You are a great storyteller, <laughs> I will say. Um, the the last two women we haven't talked about is are Eva Brown and Helen um, Eva Braun, yeah, Brown and Helen Gurley Brown, two skinny minis. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now I hasten to say that uh, they have no other resemblance except that they both were concerned with dieting. In this one regard, I would say Eva Braun was slightly less nuts than Helen Gurley Brown. She Eva Brown uh, was a lifelong. Uh, uh, someone who was concerned about her figure all the time, and she did watch what she ate. The, um, but of course the, the the sort of interesting and uh, frightening, and sort of the the thing that makes your skin crawl about Ava Brown was that she did this thinking about what she ate at the table uh, sitting next to Hitler, where she was kind of came into her own as Hitler's mistress and consort, kind of the lady of the house when he was at home in Berchtesgaden. She she had this very important role in her own eyes, uh, but she was never allowed to be seen in public. So she only kind of came out in public in this role when they were having lunch or dinner, socializing with this uh, entourage of his closest Nazi officials and sometimes their families. So it's in that context that you see Ava, you see the person that she is around food. And it uh, there are kind of two things about that that I brought out. One was that uh, this is, you know, the Norman Rockwell painting where where food is is the symbol of family love and we're all gathered around the table and good feeling spills from every happy face. Those That cliche is alive and well every time there's food on the table anywhere. 
and that includes the Nazi table. And I had the feeling that with with Eva's presence, a lady of the house, pretty and smiling and chit-chatting, and food is on the table, why, it's just a happy family. And they were able to close themselves off, look in at themselves, ignore the death, destruction, chaos, murder, and blood that was going on all around them, which they had set in motion, and be reassured about the rightness of their cause and the goodness of their own hearts because they were doing it around food. So Eva was a major symbol of that, I think, and uh, that's what sort of drove me to keep studying her story and trying to pull out the kind of person you would Mm. have to be to sit at that table. Absolutely. Now, Helen Gurley Brown had nothing like that. She, she but, had but a, she was very concerned with food. She was <laughs> didn't very eat con- it, but she right. was concerned. She was very concerned with food, and she was a uh, she was an extreme dieter. She flirted with anorexia, and probably by some clinical definition, I'm sure there were times in her life when she was anorectic. What she, but she did write about that also. She yes. wrote about her conflicts with, with you know, eating anything that would put weight on. When I was fighting weight, when I wasn't fighting, when my weight was okay. Yes. When, yeah. No, those are major themes in her writing. And what's interesting is that she can't drop the subject of food. It holds enormous power over her. She wrote a cookbook. She wrote a 400-page cookbook. This is somebody who lived on diet jello, tuna fish salad, six almonds, and uh, diet sodas most of the time. But she thought it would be a good idea to have a single girl's cookbook. It would be full of that kind of, um, uh, you know, over-the-top personalized writing style for which she was so famous, and the the, the sort of cute little remarks and the the, uh, underscore, the italics, you know, sweetheart, honey, this is... Exclamation points. Yes, (laughs) So it's all full of that. In fact, the recipes are perfectly good. Most of them could have been in any good cookbook of that time. But there's a there's a strange disconnect. Some of them are very elaborate and very hands-on, and others are just um, really the worst of quick and easy 50s cooking. So she kind of threw all those together. It did not have like a consistent culinary viewpoint which shows her own sort of crazed culinary viewpoint at the time. She she just couldn't get a grip on food. You know, her her finger was on the pulse of everything else in women's lives. That is why she was such a phenomenal success, writing those books and editing Cosmopolitan. She was a, a wonder woman of turning out a magazine that people wanted to read. Any subject in that magazine, work, sex, uh, uh fashion, makeup, and anything, relationships, she got the story that expressed what people wanted. Food, it's like that radar just disintegrated. She had no idea what to do. She ran a lot of dieting stories, Mm -hmm. but she also ran a lot of cooking stories. And again, they're just all over the map. Here you can make a Japanese feast in the most elaborate, careful, authentic. In a million years, most of her readers wouldn't have done that. Or... Here, you can open a can of this, put Ready Whip on the top, and call it dessert. It's great. She just, she just, um, she really was at sea when it came to food. But as I say, she could not drop that subject. All right. Well, and that brings me to um, to thinking, you said something about you know, Cosmopolitan Magazine. And 
often they, it was a little risque. They would talk about stories of, you know, sexual um, fun or enticements. and So we do, I guess, want to read. I say eating is, is something we all have to do. It's a necessity if we're going to live, right? But when we go and want to learn about other people's lives, maybe that's why biographers didn't write about it. We didn't want to know about those ordinary parts of their lives. We wanted to know more of the sexual, you know, jaunts that they would take or the, you know, or traveling to exotic lands. But then I'd want to know what food they ate, <laughs> but how they relate to. It. So what, what did, what did you, what did you take from all of this? What, what, how do you feel indeed that identifies a side of the personality that maybe biographers missed? Well, you know, I went into this because I was always a little, um, you know, you'd read some wonderful biography and end up, as you say, curious about where the food was. I now know one of the reasons the food isn't in there is because when you look at the archival material that exists to write about most people, most people did not leave much of a record of what they ate for any meal. So it's it's uh, incredibly frustrating to sit there in the library and turn the pages of some collection of letters or the memoirs or the diaries, and they'll say, you know, uh, Cousin Susan came to lunch today, and then we went for a walk. What was on the <laughs> table? Don't stop there. <laughs> but you never learn it. So I'm sympathetic now to biographers who had to leave it out. But it was also, I think, considered undignified. It was related mm. to women, to housekeeping, all kinds of things that were just... And we uh, know that wasn't important. Right? No, <laughs> very unimportant. And it sort of took away from the dignity and uh, stature of a biography to, to bring in anything like that. Then after, after uh, the women's movement, if people started writing about women more, you still for a while didn't see food because, again, it was too much women's work. When you wrote about women, people were writing about women in politics, women mm-hmm. in education, women in power, women, you know, breaking boundaries and doing great things. That was all in there. Women going into the kitchen and cooking, not no, interesting. No, quite the opposite. In fact, you wouldn't say, well, now I have to stop writing because I have to go into the kitchen and make dinner for my family. What? That's, yes. that, you know, that was, you know... You know, contrary to the whole movement, <laughs> you are supposed to be well. And you wrote a lot about that in in um, something from the oven. How, but that was from, coming from the outside. How industry was telling women this is going to release you from the kitchen, uh, box mixes and uh, you know, cake mixes and and newfangled um, appliances. When in fact, you did the opposite. And right, tied so us right back in. <laughs> Right. So the messages about cooking that have been coming to Americans for, for decades, it's drudgery, you know, it, it belongs to women, it belongs to mom, it's not serious. Now, of course, we're completely on the other side of that. We are in the midst of a culinary binge in this country. There's yeah, nothing. I was going to say, do you think we've gone too far? There's, you know, the old <laughs> posting people, I mean, I think I had a dinner the other night get cold because <laughs> everyone had to take a picture of it. Yes. <laughs> So we are. So I often kind of wonder, what is it going to be like 100 years from now? Some culinary historian looks back at 2017, tries to find out what people were eating, just as I looked back at the 19th century, tried to figure out what they were eating. They will, these future historians, have a ton of material, assuming they have any way to 
you know, keep the archive. Yeah, uh, right. In, if Instagram I, still exists. Yes, right. right. <laughs> All the, I mean, the, it won't last as well as paper did, that's for right. sure. But they will look back and they'll see pictures. They'll see thousands, millions, trillions of photographs of kale salad and avocado toast and all. And they'll, you know, obviously think that was what we all ate all the time. Draw conclusions that might not be right. But they will also, uh, and we have to remember this, they'll see the blogs and the food websites Mm -hmm. and all these sites where people uh, write in, they comment about the recipes, they tell their experiences with them. There really is now a huge amount of information about people's back-and-forth interaction with food online. People do write in about that. It's, it's going to be a goldmine for somebody. It would be very interesting. Whether it's something that everyone wants to read or not, probably not. But did it, let me ask you this. In writing this book, did it make you re-examine your relationship with food? I've always been incredibly interested in what everyone else was eating <laughs> and actually not that interested in what I was eating. But I, but, but it did because I, um, I started to think, you know, okay, I suppose they were all going to write this down 100 years from now. What would this? Oh, she's having cheese and crackers for lunch again. again. <laughs> <laughs> so you realize how set in your ways you are, how your choices come about, uh, maybe you originally made that choice from some really interesting thing that happened to you in your childhood, but by now it's just <laughs> on repeat. You're just doing it completely automatically. Yeah, I think we are, we're all figures of our own history, and we're probably the least reliable reporters of our own history. <laughs> um, do you think that, that food writing is, uh, somebody once in reviewing your book, I think they, they, Referred to the food writing as, as sentimental and self-indulgent. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's, I was. Uh, I think I know that review. She was saying mine wasn't, but that there I was know, a lot. She of wasn't, food but, writing. but I'm saying yes. about food writing, you know, yes. in general, right? Well, I think we do get a lot of ooing and aahing about food. You know, people go to restaurants and they'll do these off-the-cuff reviews, and there's a lot of food writing about delicious food. When you're writing about delicious food, your options are a little limited. You're, you're constantly looking for, you know, other ways to say delicious mm-hmm. and things to write about. I've I've done that. I've written about restaurants a tiny bit. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, so I think if you're a historian, if you're looking at the past, and if you're standing back, and if you are willing to be interested in what I call the underside, the things about food that are not so beautiful and delicious that I think the great stories are the awful meals I think that um, that diet gelatin that Helen Gurley Brown lived on and loved so much there's a story that interests me vastly more than somebody else's uh, beautiful escargot or somebody else's you know perfect grilled salmon and you know the, the just kind of the classic uh, New York cool person's dinner, you know, that's fine. That's great. I'd rather eat that dinner. What I want to read about and write about is Helen Gurley Brown's diet gelatin. Yeah. And that is an interesting story. I mean, so well worth the book and reading, (laughs) but how, you know, using food for, and, and that's the other thing. Food is used 
for a lot of things, food and meals, you know. How many arguments or, dis- or good discussions and bad discussions happen around a dinner table? You know, so what was on the dinner table, and did did the food matter? And and somebody put a lot of attention into putting that food on the table. Just fascinating stuff that I so often we don't stop to think about. You know, and I thank you for thinking about it because it's it's really made me um, look at at different famous people or not famous people or maybe somebody who's writing something totally unrelated to food and now I'm going to think about hmm wonder what they ate for breakfast and <laughs> did they make it themselves did they enjoy it was it a guilty pleasure or was it just sustenance <laughs> oh boy I've got my work cut out for me here just in reading but Laura it's always such a pleasure you are just full of so many wonderful insights and great and great stories and I encourage my listeners to indulge themselves in again i have to keep looking at it because i i the what she ate is the name of the book what she ate six remarkable women and the food that tells their stories just fascinating thank you so much for joining me thank you it's great to be here and thank you for listening this has been a taste of the past and i'm your host linda palaccio Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Are you one of the millions of Americans who have trouble digesting gluten? Or are you looking to shed a few pounds by shifting towards a low-carb diet? Well, we've got just the answer for you. Almond flour. Made with 100% sweet almonds, it's the perfect alternative to traditional white flours. Alternative flours are sweeping the nation and taking the baking industry by storm. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're looking at one small nut's journey through the mill and how almond flour can transform everything you thought you knew about baking. On this episode, I'll talk to our resident almond flour expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, host of the new podcast, Wedding Cake, here on HRN. She'll talk about the nutritional benefits of almond flour and how the grain is processed. Then I'll invite Eli Sussman, host of The Line and co-owner and chef of Samisa, to teach us his recipe for almond cake using Bob's Red Mill's almond flour. So stay tuned.
I'm here with Katie Mosman-Wadler, the Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. So, Katie, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. How are you feeling? I mean, I'm always hungry, but at 4.30, this is the time when I start to think about cookies and how much I would like to have a cookie right now. (laughs) I'm thinking about snacks. Well, we probably shouldn't have cookies for an afternoon snack. What about something healthy like almonds? Yeah, that sounds okay. Not super exciting. I really want a cookie. Okay, well, maybe we could compromise. What if we made cookies using almond flour? We can use it in place of the white flour, and almond flour is high in protein, low in carbs, and low in sugar, so it'll be a lot healthier. That actually sounds so delicious. I think we should do it. Yeah, we can have our cookies and eat them too. All right, good deal. And now let's hear about the origins of almond flour and the benefits of using it from our very own expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, a.k.a. DJ Cherish the Love. Cynthia is the host of our new show on HRN Wedding Cake, and she's also a killer DJ and even an ordained minister. So let's start from the beginning. Where does the magical nut, the almond, come from? Hey, so the almond is native to an area stretching from the northern Indian subcontinent westwards to Syria, Israel, and Turkey. It was spread by humans in ancient times along the shores of the Mediterranean into northern Africa and southern Europe, and more recently transported to other parts of the world, notably California. California, like, always gets the best stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Cynthia, I've heard a rumor that almonds aren't actually nuts. Is that true? That is absolutely right, Kat. The almond seed or fruit is not a true nut, but a droop. The almond is actually the seed of the fruit that grows on almond trees, a medium-sized tree that bears fragrant pink and white flowers. And like its cousins, peach, cherry, and apricot trees, the almond tree bears fruit with stone-like seeds or pits within. The seed of the almond fruit is what we refer to as the almond nut. So could you eat the fruit that the almond grows in? No, you know, you really can't. And when I was a kid, I went to visit an almond orchard and I remembered picking what I thought was an apple off of the tree, bit into it, pretty awful, threw it out, grabbed another, quote, apple, bit into it. And my cousin said, that's not an apple, that's an almond. And he broke open the, quote, apple and there it was one almond. So I know that almonds are very healthy. What about the health benefits of almonds? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is a plethora of great health benefits in almonds. More than 65% of the fat in almond flour is monounsaturated, which is excellent for maintaining healthy cholesterol levels and good overall heart health, which we all love. Additionally, scientists find that almond consumption can reduce the risk of coronary heart disease by keeping blood vessels healthy. Almonds also help manage post-meal blood glucose levels, the presence of insulin in the blood, and oxidative damage, and they raise antioxidant levels in the blood after a meal. I had no idea that they did all those things, so maybe they should say an almond a day keeps the doctor away. Yeah, maybe closer to like um, a handful of almonds, but yes, they do have incredible benefits. It sounds like these nuts, sorry, fruits, have a lot more than meets the eye. Anything else we should know? Yes, plenty. Almonds are notoriously healthy nuts, providing a good amount of manganese 
and vitamin E, as well as a healthy serving of monounsaturated fats in each quarter cup serving. Because not only do almonds have a healthy boost of protein, they are also very low in carbohydrates and inherently gluten-free, which I love. So when they're ground into a flour, they add moistness and a rich, nutty taste to baked goods. And I'm going to be making a couple of almond flour gluten-free cakes on my show, Wedding Cake, this season. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for all this great info, Cynthia. You're welcome. Now let's turn to Eli Sussman, who is going to teach us how to use this awesome ingredient. Eli is the host of The Line here on Heritage Radio Network, and he's the chef and co-owner of Simisa, along with his brother, Max. Hey, Kat. So almond flour is made from almonds that have been blanched to remove the skins and then ground to a fine texture that is great for baking. So replacing 25% of the flour in your baking with almond flour will add wonderful texture and flavor while reducing the total carbohydrates. It can be used in savory applications as well, in place of breadcrumbs and meatballs, or even as a coating for chicken and fish. Awesome. So how do you use almond flour in your cooking at Samisa? We've been using almond flour in this really delicious uh, dessert that we make. It's an almond cake. We make it in these uh, small bunt pans, and then once we pop them out, we dust them with uh, powdered sugar. They're really nice, bite-sized, really delicious. That sounds so good. Thanks for sharing. So I will definitely be by Samisa soon to try that. Thanks to Cynthia for schooling me on almonds and to Eli for sharing his tips on using almond flour. You can find his recipe for Samisa's almond cake at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about almond flour, and this is the season finale of Fresh Pickings. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out all of the episodes and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm Kat Johnson, and thanks for joining us. <laughs>